that's a great point i think can you highlight a bit more at a high level how like brands can use brand guard to protect their identity yeah so what we built we call a brand governance platform and what it does is it makes sure that everything that you put out is consistent across every channel and meets your brand voice meets the other stuff that you've put out you know there's companies that use it without generative ai they just maybe they have third party freelancers contractors writing social content for them or whatever and they don't want to spend time saying like no that's not on brand voice try this try that so so they'll upload that content to brand guard and we'll give it a brand score right it's 88% on brand 92% on brand or whatever and your head of marketing can say don't send it to me until it scores at least 90% on brand and then i'll review it and you can see where this gets to be an even bigger problem in a generative AI world where you're like, well, I want to have ChatGPT create 5,000 hyper-targeted emails for me. You can't possibly review them all. And as we talked about earlier, ChatGPT is trained to give you kind of like an average response unless you're a great prompter. Hi, I am Pranajit and welcome to another episode of Deep Tech Music a show where we get actionable and tactical insights to take your deep tech startup from zero to one. I'm super excited to be introducing today's guest, none other than the illustrious Rob May, who in many ways is the driving force in AI's integration into the real world. Rob, welcome to the show. So glad you could take out time for that. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So among the myriad of roles that you have donned over the years, the one which has profound impact personally for me, and many other in the community is your investing in AI newsletter. So today we are going to focus on some of your pieces from the newsletter and go deeper into them. But before we go in that direction, you have been creating content for close to two decades now, starting from businesspundit.com back in 2003, if I'm right. So I want to ask you, how do you keep up coming up with such great quality content every week, year after year? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't really answer that. I, I think I would say it's probably the same reason that I'm an entrepreneur who's done four companies now is because I, I think something um, not quite wired up in my brain the right way. And so I just, you know, I, I think I view the world a little sideways from other people sometimes. And I see things sometimes maybe before other people do for certain categories of, of things in technology that are going to happen. And when I started writing in 2003 on, as you mentioned, the old Business Pundit blog, I started doing that just to play around with movable type software, which was the main blogging software at the time. And I thought it was a lot of fun. And what I found is that I'm a little bit of a person who's all over the place sometimes in my ideas and writing helped me to clarify and think through them. So the main reason I, I write is actually just for me and to figure out what I think. And so I don't, I've never paid a lot of attention to traffic stats and have never done link baity stuff to try to get traffic because I'm, I'm not doing it for the traffic. I'm doing it for myself. Awesome. So it's more from the passion. And uh, so your pieces have you know, often uh, got us thinking a lot and uh, a good uh, conversation discussion in our various community meetups from time to time. So thanks for that and look forward to more pieces. So we are going to get into the first piece that I want to discuss, which is titled Why Real User Feedback Matters Less in an AI World. Now, there you argue that user feedback will become less important in the future of AI development. So what's inefficient currently in the process as per you? It's a great question. And I don't know that it, I would say it's inefficient. I think the issue is that the cycle times to incorporate user feedback 
are shrinking and that becomes problematic, particularly when you factor in that users, uh, depending on who you're talking to, aren't always so far ahead of the curve. So, you know, I've, I've been in tech for 20 years. If you roll back in time and look at how companies used to be built, you know, startups used to, 20 years ago, startups didn't matter as much. And definitely big companies wouldn't talk to startups because the idea was like, you're probably going to go out of business. You're not going to make it. So why do I want to adopt your product? And so what happened was there were very big gaps in the market that nobody was addressing for various reasons. And, and sometimes you could go and, you know, you could spend time, you could spend a year or two interviewing people and building a prototype and getting started. And that counted for quite a lot. Then I, I started to become a little bit skeptical when I did my first company of the value of user feedback and how it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Because when I, when I did back up a fine, one of the things that happened was we had about 300 customers. Even though we ended up, when we sold the company, it was a B2B company, we started B2C. And we would back up your Flickr account, your Gmail account, you know, your photo bucket account, all those types of, of things. And we surveyed our user base and the number one use case, the number one feature that they wanted was AWS was like two years old and people would say, you're a startup. We don't trust you. We want the ability to use our own AWS key and store this on our own AWS bucket. So we built that feature. I think four people ever used it. So, but it was the number one feature, right? It was like 60 or 80 people had requested it. Four people ever used it. And then obviously, as we got bigger and further along, it mattered less and less. So, so I started to get a little bit skeptical of user feedback and start to think that like, well, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. It has to be balanced against everything else that you're seeing in the market. You know, there's certain types of companies where you're doing something really, really new. And I think the user feedback's not valuable. You know, you've everybody's seen that chart of how long it took the radio to get 80% market penetration and then TV and then color TV and then you know, cell phones and then, and then chat GPT to get to hundred million people. Everybody saw it was three days or five days or whatever crazy number it was. These adoption cycle times are happening faster and faster. And so if you play that out, one of the things that happens is you start to have to bet against the future rather than bet against where people are, because where people are now, they're not going to be very long. So take cell phones, right? If you you know, most of us get a new cell phone probably every two years, you know, maybe every three, some people a little bit faster, maybe every year. But as the, as the improvements come faster and faster, the question is, do we upgrade faster or not? Because it's a little bit of a headache to upgrade and convert stuff over and, you know, they're getting better at it. But like, do you, do you want to get to the point where you can't, um, the, the technology cycles change faster than humans can adapt. And as we hit that point, User feedback doesn't matter so much because more and more of like some things don't change and some, you know, core human wants and desires will still be the same and we can articulate those. But in terms of how we use products and features, as that changes faster and faster, you know, number one, the time spent talking to users, the months you might do that uh, just to track from building and kind of going forward with, you know, how you think something should be. And secondly, the tech cycles could change too fast. And so you, you really have to make these decisions. You know, I, I don't want to say it's bad in all scenarios. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of areas where user feedback is, is still going to be great and you still want to do it. But I think there's going to be more and more areas that are just moving, moving the technology and the product development move faster than users' ability to comprehend it. 
So if you're always going to be leading in the market and you're always going to be showing people something new that they haven't imagined and you're that kind of company, then it might not make sense to get a bunch of user feedback, right? Your cycle times might not matter and the users might always be behind where you are. And so that was kind of the point of that post. And, you know, problems like that, which already exist in some types of new markets, I just think are going to get worse and accelerated by AI. Got it. Uh, and I think there's an interesting uh, statement you made in that uh, piece as well, wherein you say customer development was trying to save startups from wasting money. But in a world where AI makes product development cheap, it could be that customer development is the waste. So that kind of encapsulates, uh, I think, a very thought that you mentioned. And I'm also seeing this uh, play out uh, in the organizations which are very public, like Coinbase which I think recently uh, did away with the product management sort of uh, role title uh, and move it to product marketing, whereas the vision and the product uh, roadmap is more set by now the founder himself. And so they wanted to eliminate the process of uh, setting roadmap, experimenting, coming up with uh, the other such uh, items that are typical of product development. So I think that uh, syncs with the thesis that you just mentioned. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And then, you know, you're talking about public companies where this is playing out. You know, what we've seen since Twitter got acquired by Elon Musk is you've seen what, like, yeah. time, customer development, like, he's running that thing like a startup, even though it's really basic. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to we're gonna do this with the blue check marks, and they just roll it out. And then two days later, they roll it back. And it's kind of, it's that kind of chaos. And I think people that have never worked in a startup don't realize that, like, that's the kind of chaos that as a startup you have almost every day. <laughs> so... Now it's on. Now it's on everybody to see. Yep, awesome. So you also mentioned about synthetic users as a possible alternative to real user feedback. Can you explain a bit more about what synthetic users are and how they can be used for such purposes? Yeah, this is a fascinating topic to me, and the only reason I found this was because I I write a newsletter and a guy from with a domain like syntheticusers.com signed up for my newsletter. I'm like syntheticusers.com. What is that? So I go and I start poking around, and here's the general idea. When you're trying to ask ChatGPT a question, and it's been trained on a lot of the internet, you can do a good job of getting the core zeitgeist, the, the core feeling of how your average person feels out of ChatGPT about something. And the reason you can do that is because it's been trained on a bunch of you know, things on the internet. So you know, if you ask it, common, you know, questions about things that it might like or not like, you sort of get this, you know, homogenized view of that. And then you have the ability to prompt chat GPT and say, well, imagine you're this kind of person with this kind of situation. How might you answer this question? So there've been a couple of companies that have popped up that had this idea of, well, how about instead of getting 50 users to answer the question, we only get 10 real users and we use 40 synthetic users, which are basically specifically engineered prompts that we give to chat GPT. And it turns out for a lot of use cases, you get really interesting feedback that makes sense. That's stuff that you want to use. I was kind of shocked because it feels weird, right? It feels a little bit counterintuitive to say, well, you can aggregate all the stuff that people have written on the internet about your product category or your problem space or whatever, and, and uh, train it up into an LLM. And then when you go talk to that LLM, you get pretty good feedback, you know, as if you were talking to real users. 
that captures the average sentiment. Now you still need humans, particularly for a lot of the edge cases and a lot of the, you know, weird people that want different things. But um, yeah, and so you may see more of that, which may may speed things up. But it, you know, it's weird. Like even as I'm sitting here saying it, it feels like it shouldn't be true that an LLM should capture this. But but logically, when you understand how LLMs work and where their data came from, it does make sense. So it's it's yeah, it's it's definitely a weird weird concept. Yeah. And I think the more you think of it, uh, the more it also sort of makes sense that uh, LLMs like ChatGPT already have this uh, sort of huge data around certain specific, as you said, product categories of uh, a certain product. But you can also bake some more knowledge into that LLM, say, uh, about a particular user profile. Now, all these third-party media syndications, the online ad syndications, they also have anonymous uh, data. And you could probably uh, have those, use those anonymous uh, data for a particular user profile and bake that into an LLM and create sort of a retail uh, synthetic user. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think you'll see more and more people doing that and, and relying on these kinds of things. So yeah, lots of, uh, lots of innovation opportunity there. Exciting times. So let's talk about the second piece uh, and since we are talking about LLMs, and this piece uh, is where you highlight about certain LLM aspects. So that's titled Five Contrarian AI Thesis for Early Stage Investors. Uh, in this article, you put some bold thesis for the AML space. I think it's important for a startup founder also to be aware of C. And one of the most prominent ones is where you advocate that horizontal LLMs will lose. So can you elaborate on that as to why do you think so? Yeah, and when I say lose, I want to distinguish here. I, you know, my my newsletter approaches things from a business and economics perspective, not a technical perspective. And so I don't intend to imply that people won't use hell horizontal LLMs or that they won't continue to be around. Um, but it just, you know, the 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 issue that I was getting there at is these foundation model companies have taken on so much investment, and the reason people can justify taking on hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of investment is that they're going to be like the dominant way that people do AI. They're going to be, you know, AWS for AI over time. And there's two reasons that I don't believe that. Uh, and there's there's some data. And, and I, I wouldn't say with any of these things, right, I am a strong opinions, loosely held kind of person. And so I've had, you know, I've, I've had some some podcasts and some articles, even my head of AI debated me on this and wrote a, wrote a counterpoint. Um, you know, if you, uh, it, yeah, his, uh, his substack is embracing enigmas.substack.com and he he's got some counterpoints pretty good but um you know but but i think if i'm going to make the case for why this is true i think that uh we've already started to see that the the cost to train these is coming down really quickly via combination of new new training ideas better hardware better compression algorithms all these kinds of things and they're going to get to the point really quickly where you know training your own in 18 months might make a lot more sense than it does today, depending on the level of quality you need and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but we also see really, really significant performance increases in certain areas like healthcare or finance when you verticalize the LLM and and really fine tune it on a on a significant scale with a lot of special data. And so um, and so when that happens you know, it, it might be more economically valuable to be in one of these other places and not be in the horizontal LLM where you're competing with these handful of big players 
like particularly OpenAI, which as a well-funded but still startup company has to compete with, you know, Amazon and Google and, you know, they had a partnership with Microsoft, but now it looks like Microsoft may be competing directly with them. It's sort of unclear from the latest news announcements. So that's all problematic. And, um, you know, and then you have this, all this stuff that's coming with new computer architectures and computer chips that are going to come out that might make trading these things a thousand or 10,000 times more efficient, which is going to change the, change the game again. And so, so I think, and, and the problem is as a business, when you start a business, you take a point of view on the world and you build your workflows and you think about strategy in terms of the assets that you have and the way that you view the world and, and, and all that uh, in a certain way. And if that LLM way, I think uh, just has a good chance of not holding and not winning over time. So, yeah. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, there have been these rumors that OpenAI is going to go bankrupt this year, which I, I find shocking and probably untrue, but, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, I strongly concur with your thought that LLM training and those in compute costs are going to come down. But I think uh, the recent report of NVIDIA reporting a GPU shortage, they might have been listening to your thoughts as well and thought that let's uh, get right back then. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's something which is going to play out. And, uh, and even in my... Uh, experience while we are looking to build out or use these LLMs for enterprise applications. I strongly concur that the verticalization of these LLMs is something which we are also being requested for. And the horizontal LLMs do cut through some of the starter use cases. But if we really want to have a business outcome, uh, we do really need to fine-tune it or maybe pre-train those LLMs to have a vertical-specific uh, so I also concur on those thoughts. Okay, so let's discuss about the second contrarian thesis, uh, which was that customer acquisition channel will collapse into ages. And this is one of my favorite uh, points. So first of all, can you help the listeners understand what we mean by agency? Yeah, this is to me the most fascinating topic that came out of LLMs, which is this ability, pe people realize that you could prompt an LLM to perform a series of steps and basically say, get back to me when you've done that, that last step. So, and there are some things that LLMs can do as you start to give them tools to interact with the internet. Like, and there's some things they can't, they can't go register a domain for you yet, but there's no reason they probably won't be able to at some point in the next couple of years. So what that means is uh, you can start to build agent architectures and agent architectures are things where you have a task you'd want to perform. So, so let's say I was going to build one that, you know, did a, did a CEO's job, right? So, so I'm going to build the CEO agent and I might say, okay, go out and draft an investor report and bring it back to me for approval. And it knows where to get that information. It drafts it, then it sends it back to me. And then I approve it and I ask it to go take the next step, go email it to investors. And, you know, then investor feedback comes in, draft responses to the investor feedback. And, you know, you can see that this series of steps in this agent architecture allow you to just sort of, it's going to allow everybody to be a manager, right? But, but you're going to manage these agents instead of people in, in some cases. So what I love to do on the investing side and the way that I think about technology is I like to extrapolate it to ridiculous levels sometimes and see what happens. Because when you do that, sometimes you realize wow, that doesn't really work very well. Therefore, it can't really be sustainable. 
or you or you hear some surprising thing like, wow, actually, if that happened, this would be this other thing would be really, really valuable. And, you know, that's the way the world would go. So to give you an example of the former, you know, I was one of the few people when Clubhouse was really popular. I was one of the few people that was anti Clubhouse and I tweeted that I would short it if I could. And people kind of came back and were like, no, you're an idiot. It's growing so fast. We've never seen anything grow so fast. But I remember one of the guys when I said, what's special about it? And he said, it's intimacy. He's like, you can be in a room with Elon Musk. So what do I do? I, you know, and you could ask him questions. And I initially think in my mind, okay, let's extrapolate this to a billion people. You can't. Intimacy just doesn't scale. It's impossible. And that's why I was sort of anti-clubhouse. So bringing that back to our auto GPT thing and our agent architecture. So I, I use those interchangeably sometime because auto GPT was kind of the big first agent architecture that people started following online. So let's assume that these agents are the way people work. So let's assume that if you're a product marketer, you're going to have a product marketing agency agent that's probably made by Salesforce or HubSpot or Marketo or some company like that, or some startup, who knows? Um, you're going to have a you know finance agent and accounting agent. You're going to have a sales agent and um, you know a customer success agent and and all these things. And and a lot of your job is going to be interacting with them, getting feedback, giving them new instructions, etc. So in that world, how do you choose software and how do you choose vendors? Because probably what you would do is you would. You would use your agent. I mean, your agent has all this information. It knows your workflows. You you probably build some trust with it. So you'd probably tell your agent, well, go out and find me the reviews, the, the best reviews for blah, blah, blah thing. You know, for I, I'm going to buy new uh, CRM software. So find me the best for our use case. Where it gets interesting, though, is these agents having the scale that they have. Like if you or I were going to do that as humans, we might spend a couple hours going out and reading reviews and watching demos. And Things your agent can do in a matter of minutes. So if it can do this in a matter of minutes, it can take in so much more data. It can read all the, you know, the, there's a thousand reviews on G2. It can read them all. Like I would read them all. I'd read 20 and be like, okay, I've got the gist of it. Um, so it can find really in, interesting insights of what might be the best software for you, et cetera. So when that happens, what does that mean for how software gets bought and sold? Let's, let's say in seven years, 80% of us, buys, find new software tools through our agents. Well, if you're a software company, then you have to think about from a marketing perspective, how do I cozy up to the agents? How do I make the agents happy with me? Um, you know, we've, we've done this in previous waves of tech. There was when the, when, when SEO first became a thing, we did a bunch of keyword stuffing. We just made, you know, if we sold CRM software, we just wrote CRM so many times on the page that we were going to write, you know, we tried to link to other CRM sites and get links from that. And then, then it, you know, and then as we broadened into more inbound marketing and content marketing, um, we just cranked out content, right? Every, every company, B2B company had a content division that just made eBooks and webinars and as much stuff as we could find and we're educate the buyer through the buyer's journey. So what are you going to do if the buyer's journey is talk to your agent, you know, and it's going to tell you what to do. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is going to be because I don't know how those agents are going to make decisions, but the thing that I do know is if you're investing in a SaaS company today and you like the SaaS company because they're great at content marketing or they have a great, they're just, you know, a great outbound email strategy or, or whatever, like, is that even going to work in three years or five years or seven years? And, and so 
I think you have to be really, really careful about that, which is sort of why I, why I did this. Because I mean, if this happens, if customer acquisition channels collapse into agents or the main way we do stuff, like it's it's going to like rewrite all the ways that we do sales and marketing in the in the B two B industry. Got it. And I think uh, following on from there, in your most recent piece, part uh, of the tech is like fashion industry. There, you make an argument that. Uh, we don't have established market for these kind of uh, new distribution channels. So, right, many ways of finding PMF there will be partially about creating those PMF with these new distribution channels. So, that's a fascinating thing to look into. And often while deciding to invest also, we look back at companies uh, which are riding a change in this market forces, be it like technological changes, regulation changes, distribution channel is also one of them. So, I think these agents, as you mentioned, have the potential to be distribution channel of the future and startups uh, should definitely take uh, cognizance of same. And, yeah, uh, we should coin a new term today on the podcast, agent market fit, right? AMF. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Awesome. I, I think that we are going to make that trending on Twitter. <laughs> cool. So let's talk on the Third uh, contrary thesis now, and uh, that's where uh, you mentioned that uh, AI will kill most of forms of long-term competitive advantage. So, are we talking about uh, technical advantage here only, or what about modes like around those network and distribution and other related stuff? Yeah, well, so so let's go back to our synthetic users example, and let's use the network effects as an example. You know, depending on what you're getting out of your network, if a lot of what you're getting is like information, so people talk about, you know, networks and data labeling and all that kind of stuff. But if you can use, if you can simulate users with LLMs, then having more real users versus, you know, some real users and access to synthetic users may not be the advantage that it used to be. And again, maybe having, you know, part of the problem now is, so, so this would be this would be what what will be really interesting with the agent architecture as well. You know, we don't have LinkedIn doesn't have any real competitors, and Facebook doesn't have any real competitors, and we don't. None of us want to log into nineteen different social networks that are all slightly different. You know, based on whatever we want to do. And so, but if if our agents did that work for us, that might make sense. So, so you can start to see how some of these things could break down, even things like network effects where it's advantageous to have these large networks. So when you start thinking about competitive advantage, th this has been a little bit of, you know, so when, when I was in, when I was in business school, they, I, I had a teacher who basically said, um, I had a professor who was like, look, a, a lot of people believe competitive advantage is going away in the internet age because information that you used to have that was proprietary was now available to everybody. And while I don't think it went away, I think a lot of things definitely changed. So a lot of businesses that could have been competitive geographically couldn't anymore and you needed scale. So, you, you know, local pharmacies died out, for example, and, um, and things like that. And so, so, that, so there's been a question of, does tech erode more and more forms of competitive advantage over time anyway? And so when you think about, you know, what AI could mean. I think about it this way. If you believe that hiring the couple of smartest people in the world could help you catch up to whoever your main competitor is, 
and do it quickly, you might be able to do that with AI by hiring the AIs or doing something like that. So, so your competitive advantage is going to come down to, you know, infrastructure types of things, you know, patents that other people can't copy. You know, even with software patents, people can find a way around them. Uh, sometimes hardware patents are, are, are pretty good and, and, you know, hard to copy. But uh, so, yeah, so I just think, you know, if there's, if there's seven forms of common competitive advantage now, like, is the world going to shrink to three, you know, and, and what are those going to be? And um, I don't know. Yeah, I, this is kind of maybe the one that, like, if I was going to say which one am I least uh, enthusiastic about will actually happen, it, it might be this one, because what I didn't talk about in here and what you could argue is you could say, oh, no, but, but new forms of competitive advantage are going to emerge. And, um, you know, that may happen as well. And that would kind of make my argument moot, but we'll see. Yeah, but I think some sort of competitive advantage uh, will remain. I think you will speak to it in the uh, in your one of your pieces uh, titled "The Biggest Mistake AI Investors Are Making," uh, wherein you recommend uh, other investors what to actually look in for startup. Uh, but I think that's very valuable information for an AI startup founder to know uh, how to make themselves defensible and competitive. And there, I think you. Uh, point out few points uh, that having a stable customer relationship is something which is very important and then having teams which are creative and flexible uh, to adapt to situations right and then thirdly uh, using uh, applications that use different types of AI and ML instead of a single particular technology so these are some kind of I think soft uh, skills or uh, soft technology if I can if I can say uh, that add to competitive advantage in the long term in this current uh, era of uh, AI and what do you say? Yeah, definitely, right? And I, I think the thing you said there about customer relationships is really, really going to be important because all, all of these execution opportunities start to collapse because we can all use agents and smaller companies can be as efficient and effective as bigger companies. And when you start to be able to like, everybody can move faster and 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 all this kind of stuff, you know, what what one of the one of the mental models I use here is when when the price to do something or the effort to do something collapses, what does it create and what does it make harder and and more rare? So when intelligence explodes and is everywhere, people are going to use it for different things. People are going to use it to try to manipulate people into buying crap that they don't want to buy. People are going to use it for good things to create real products that meet real needs, etc. But you look at the generative AI wave, you're going to get a lot more content, right? You're going to get a lot more emails. You're going to get a lot more eBooks written and blog posts. You're going to get a lot more images and hyper-targeted ads and all that. So what goes up when everybody can do marketing better? Trust, right? The relationship that you have and the fact that you know, I mean, this is my fourth startup and three quarters of the people who I work with, I've worked with before. And overall, they're great people, but you know, we all have our flaws. It's and it's it's kind of the devil you know saying, right? It's like it's nice to you, you know what somebody does well and what they don't. And as a customer, you think about that with the vendors that you use. You know what this vendor stands for. Um, I mean, this is part of the reason that we one of the ideas that we built this pro this this product brand guard on, right? The company that I that I run now is this idea that brand is gonna become more important than it's ever been because everything else is going to become more and more commoditized by AI. And so having a strong brand, which ties back to your point about relationships with customers, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. This is how we treat you. This is the promise we're making to you about our products and our service and our support. Like 
those things are going to matter more and more. And that's why they have to be protected, consistent, et cetera. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think you're right. That's a great point. I think, can you highlight a bit more at a high level how like brands can use BrandGuard to protect their identity? Yeah, so what we built, we call a brand governance platform. And what it does is it makes sure that everything that you put out is consistent across every channel and meets your brand voice, meets the other stuff that you've put out. You know, there's companies that use it without generative AI. They just, maybe they have third-party freelancers, contractors writing social content for them or whatever, and they don't want to spend time saying like, no, that's not on brand voice, try this, try that. So, so they'll upload that content to BrandGuard and we'll give it a brand score, right? It's 88% on brand, it's 92% on brand or whatever. And your head of marketing can say, don't send it to me until it scores at least 90% on brand, and then I'll review it. And you can see where this gets to be an even bigger problem in a generative AI world where you're like, well, I want to have ChatGPT create 5,000 hyper-targeted emails for me. You can't possibly review them all. And as we talked about earlier, ChatGPT is trained to give you kind of like an average response unless you're a great prompter. And so you want to make sure that one of those emails doesn't say something that sounds like one of your competitors or something that's off brand or uses words you would never use. Um, and so what we built is this platform that has a bunch of machine learning models that are trained on your style guide, your brand guidelines, and historic content that you've, you've had. And, um, you know, we, we teach machines to understand brands and branding, and then we make sure that everything you produce uh, is on brand. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really fun problem to work on. And, you know, knock on wood, it, it ties to, uh, to where the world's going. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And can, so can personalities also use it to back their brand? Uh, yeah. Do you mean like personalities, like celebrities and things like that? Celebrities. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking to some, some groups about that um, that have reached out because I, I think what you're going to see. So, so think about this. If, if I go to chat GPT and I ask for a, a, a poem about, or, or, or I go to stable diffusion, ask for an image about like, you know, Taylor Swift wearing Nike's drinking Red Bull. Taylor Swift, Red Bull, and Nike, like none of them like that or want that to happen. So how is that going to get resolved in the future? Well, there's a couple of different ways. You know, the, the courts around the world, you know, I'm, I'm based in the U.S. And so the courts here in the U.S. could say, well, sorry about your luck, Taylor Swift and Nike and Red Bull. You just, uh, you know, people can do what they want. Your stuff was out on the internet and that's the way the world works. I doubt that'll happen. The U.S. has been pretty, uh, you know, pretty consistent in enforcing trademark and copyright and IP you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. So how else could it, could it work? Well, these brands could all have data sets that they give to all of the, um, all the platforms. Oh, make sure you incorporate all these assets in your data set and um, they better represent us and we'll get a better brand representation out. We still have problems there because you don't know what else is in that data set that ultimately train that LLM or diffusion model or, or whatever you have. And um and so, so that could be a problem. So I think what's going to happen over time, and I think this is a couple of years away, but I think brands and celebrities are going to have their own sort of like mini foundation models that are trained up on content that they approve. And those are going to be tied into a platform like BrandGuard that governs what comes out of those models and allows you to continually retrain the models based on feedback from what comes out. And, um, and then when you want to work with somebody, uh, another company or or whatever you you loan out your model uh, to them or give them access to your model. So that's uh, a view of the future that I have. So yeah, I think celebrities will will be doing that. 
sounds very exciting and i'm looking forward to have more inputs on this maybe in a future uh, podcast episode one year down the line wherein we have such super exciting use cases uh, to discuss more great so before uh, we wrap this up uh, rob i have a couple of more questions uh, one is uh, tell us more about the ai innovators community what's its purpose and how uh, one can look forward to become a member Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I started in 2015. So I sold my first company in 2014. And in 2015, I decided the next phase of my career was going to be focused on AI. It was the right time, et cetera. And I started doing dinners with AI people. And the first dinner was eight of us in Boston who were working on AI companies. And I just happened to meet all these people. And everybody else is like, oh, there's other people working on AI. That's cool. I didn't realize that. And so the dinners grew over the next couple of years into dinners that had sort of 70 or 80 people. We had an email list of about 200. So last year, um, a guy named Abi Yadav sold his company. I was an investor and he came in and said, I'd really love to help you do more with this. I think we could have a better impact on the community if we expanded your dinners from these big twice a year dinners with speakers, but into something bigger. So we formed the AI Innovators community and... The goal behind the community is to bring together people, regardless of affiliation, to have them talk to each other. So there are lots of pockets of AI. You know, MIT has a group. Harvard has a group. Um, you know, a lot of big companies have, have groups. A lot of locations, you know, have, have groups and, and there's meetups. But nobody does a good job of bringing, like, big company AI people together with academics and startups and, and kind of really trying to, like, knowledge share and make sure the whole industry grows and that people are thinking about some of the important things. So, so the goal is really to make sure how, you know, how can you connect to other people that are working on AI that could be helpful, um, could be thought provoking uh, or whatever. So, so we try to keep the, we try to keep the sponsors to like not VCs because I don't want VCs to sort of own and run this um, and not companies because we don't want to do that either. So we, we, you know, we try to keep it to like, you know, usually we have like a bank or a law firm, you know, sponsor some of the events that we do. Um, and we, we do a couple things. We try to do a monthly get together of some kind that people can come to that's a little bit social, a little bit intellectual. We do two big dinners per year where we have a speaker on a emerging topic that are really important. And it's crafted so that the, the dinners are exclusive. You have to be invited. We try to keep them high quality. Uh, sometimes people get mad that we don't let them come, but you know, we want to make sure that it's not just public and that everybody that comes is happy with who they talk to. And then the monthly events, you know, are sort of the filter into the system where, you know, anybody can show up and, um, you know, learn a little bit more. And then and we'll do we'll do a conference or two as well. So, um, yeah, if you guys are interested in, you know, running a group in, uh, you know, in, in somewhere in India, I think we'd, uh, you know, we'd love we'd love to partner on that. Yeah, that would be great. Yes, uh, definitely. I think we should discuss to have that and uh, we can. Uh, so these are right now only offline. Uh, we don't have any online uh events for now. not yet but we're we're working on that and and we will do some so you know abby and i both have day jobs and a lot of stuff going on but we're um we're, we're hiring an yeah. events coordinator and we're we're starting to work on some of this so. awesome sounds exciting uh lastly i have to ask you about the crypto industry i think you have been a non-skeptic and i share your views what led you to having such a strong conviction against crypto well, so a lot of people don't know this. I tried to launch a crypto project in 2017. And the idea behind the project, which I still think is a good idea, is that um, I think the one good use case for blockchain is identity verification. And my idea was you're going to have all these AI agents out in the world. Companies should have to register them. 
and they should be in a public ledger where anybody can just reach out and say uh, and ask who owns this agent and you can file complaints against it or or whatever that might happen. Um, so I actually got you know subpoenaed by the SEC. I had to go down and talk to them and they basically said, look, our um, you've made a really good case for why this isn't a security, but our boss has said that every crypto thing is a securities uh, is a you know security. So you you know we don't know what to tell you. Go talk to the people in DC. So we sent a couple letters down there and and nothing came of it. Um, so I was I was kind of a skeptic before, but I did see some use cases for blockchain and and tokens. Just um, but just in general, you know, again, putting on my economic hat, they don't solve a lot of useful problems, even at scale. I mean, the system is way slower than Visa or Mastercard or American Express for financial transactions. Um, in terms of executing the transaction, you know, the number they can do per hour. In terms of when you actually receive your money, I get that it's a little bit faster. Um, you know, but part of the reason that like, like I think a lot about, I don't know if you've ever made a financial payment mistake, but like if I, if I wire money to the wrong place and I call my bank, you know, a couple minutes after and be like, Hey, can you put a hole on that wire? And you know, do like, they'll, they'll do it. Right. Or sometimes there, there, there are techniques to get your money back and you can't do that with Bitcoin, uh, and other crypto. So that's a problem. And then a lot of the use cases that people give are things like, well, imagine, but imagine like your title insurance, right? And like recording your title on a blockchain when you buy a house. I'm thinking, well, if you're paying $600,000 for a house and the title piece of it is, you know, $400. Like, do I care if you can cut that in half to $200 using a blockchain? Like, it's just not, not my big piece of my economic pie that I care about, right? So yeah, it's like there's a lot of, I, I just think, it's not that I don't think there are any use cases. I just think they're really, really limited. So I don't understand why the industry is so big and so much money's going into it. Um, and I, I, I can tell you why I think it is. I think it's because financial traders love it because they have, they can use trading tactics that haven't worked since, you know, 1985 to manipulate the price and, and make money. Um, but yeah, we'll see where it goes. Maybe, maybe I'll be wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. I think, uh, you hit the nail on and, uh, yeah. So a lot of VCs were, I think, as you said, very bullish on this and creating a new world order and on that, but. No specific strong use case, uh, business use case is uh, coming out. DeFi is something, as you mentioned, I think uh, that makes sense what you just mentioned now, if I think of it. And the other one is gaming and gaming has fallen flat right now. So, yeah, so we're looking at uh, what other things can come up. But uh, that's it. And you have to remember, so Warren Buffett, who I love, has this saying, you know, never ask a barber for a haircut. It's like, obviously, they're going to need a haircut, right? And maybe you do need a haircut, maybe you don't, I don't know, but it's it's in their interest to say you need one. And so when you look at VCs and the money they're pouring into crypto, they're judged on how fast they return money back to LPs. And VCs typically take a while, but with crypto projects, they don't because they can sell the tokens a lot of times. So that's part of the reason that I think VCs have been really into crypto. All right, uh, Rob, so where can listeners uh, find you online and how can listeners be useful to you? Well, uh, I, so I do a lot of AI angel investing. So if you have an AI startup and um, you want some feedback or you're interested in investment, you know, please if find me on LinkedIn. Uh, just look, you know, Rob May Brandgard will probably, you know, find it. Um, you can email me, Rob, at uh, AI-innovators.com if you want to talk about AI Innovators Group or about investment. And then I'd encourage you to read my newsletter, investinginai.substack.com, where I, you know, write all these thoughts that I have. Awesome. And I'm going to put uh, all those links in the show notes. And also I want to give a shout out to the 
your podcast AI Innovators and uh, encourage the listeners to do check it out if you're in the AIML space definitely uh, worth listening to Rob it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having you here fascinating to uh, hear through your thoughts your insights uh, I look forward to sitting again maybe in some time next year and discuss more such items but thanks for taking your time again for this yeah it'd be great to come back on someday this has been a lot of fun so thank you for having me Thank you.